Welcome to Luminaries the Podcast, the ultimate destination for all things lighting and production design. I'm your host, Christopher Bolton, and I'm thrilled to be your guide through the fascinating world of cutting-edge software and lighting design methodologies. Here at Luminary Learning, we're on a mission to illuminate your knowledge with insights from the brightest minds in the industry. Today's guest is none other than global TV lighting design superstar, Joshua Cutts. He joins me on this episode to shed some light on his history in the industry and share some insights on how to get started in this exciting industry we've all dedicated our lives to. His approach to TV lighting for music on big shows like Eurovision, The Voice and Idols. His expertise stretches far and wide and includes designing installation systems for TV studios. So without further ado, let's dive into the brilliance of lighting and production design. Get ready for insights, stories and knowledge that'll spark your creativity. This is Luminaries, the podcast, where the spotlight is on learning. Hi, Josh. Thanks for joining us. It's been quite a while since you and I have had the opportunity to work together. Uh, thank you for taking the time to come out of your very busy schedule uh, and joining us on the show. I think to get us started, maybe you want to share with the listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and how you got into this crazy game. Yeah, how's it, Chris? Uh... Yeah, yeah. Good. Thanks for having me here. Uh, absolutely don't mind hanging out and talking about uh, our work together and stuff we've done and stuff that I've done. Um, yeah, I've been around in this game for a while now, but I think I worked it out. It's, I think I've been rigging lights for 30 years now uh, this year. So it's 30 years I've been doing this. I started out in theatre. Theatre was my starting ground at the market theatre. I, st- I worked there for about eight years or seven years or so. So the Market Theatre, that's in Johannesburg, is that right? That's correct, yeah, Market Theatre, Johannesburg. It's quite an old, famous theatre. It was started in, in, in the apartheid times. Its main thing was that it was one of the first places that people of multiple races could perform on a single stage. So it's got a, it's got a lot of history. So it was a great building to start in. From there, I, I grew slightly and, and fell in love with lighting uh, in that space and how to create things with light. I then realized I needed to move on and, and move with technology. So so I then worked at another company where I was sales and training you know, on control desk so that I could, could learn a few things. And that for me was a, a great learning period because I then got delved straight into the complexities of control desks and how to control advanced lights and things like that. But that lasted for a couple of years and because obviously being a designer, you want to get out there and get into the game. Josh, obviously, from what you've told me now, it sounds like you had more of a hands-on training. Did you do any actual formal training, or did you work your way up through learning the job? Actually, I actually learned through the job. I didn't actually do any formal studying of any kind, just hands-on experience from the marketer up through the ranks in the corporate world and into television, and every single one of them. You know, you, you learn from people if you watch people and ask questions and, and I did a lot of that and I was quite hungry for knowledge. So I made sure that I was always in the front when there was someone and watching what they were doing and, and trying to adapt what they did into my workflow. And eventually that it all evolved into something, you know. But that, that doesn't mean that, that formal training isn't a good thing. I think formal training is would be great if it was available. Sorry, I actually wanted to ask you uh, if there was yep. any specific people that you recall that really influenced you in your early days oh. of uh, working at the market theatre and then developing on uh, later on into the TV stuff. 
so many people, hey, so many people. If you go back, the early guys that I worked with, there was a guy named Richard Barnes who ran the lighting department there, who took me under his wing and 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 kind of taught me the inner workings of a lighting plan and and how to rig the lights safely and how to how to basically power up stuff and get it all going and deal with directs and stuff. And then you work with great lighting designers in the theater, particularly Manny Manum, Dennis Hutchinson, Wesley France. These are all sort of pioneers of their art form and, and and they have very distinct styles of lighting. So you just kind of watch what they do and hopefully learn from them, you know, and then and then you move out into to the the corporate game, which is very different. And one of the, the, the guys that helped me quite a lot was Kurt Dupria in the early days of television and, and JR roughly, he was he was another designer that I really admired and aspired to within the field, you know. It was definitely one of the yeah. best. Absolutely, I agree. Back in the day, yeah. he had huge, yeah. huge, huge influences on my career as well. Yeah. No, big time, man. And just the way that he handled music and his general demeanor as a person was always a was a great thing to see, you know, and great inspiration. Tim Dunn and Hugh Turner. I mean, these guys are legends, and 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 you, you watch the work they do, and and you hope one day to to try and you know be like them in some way, and 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 be able to handle grand scale projects uh, with what the ease that they used to show, they used to make it look easy, even though it wasn't. But you hoped that one day you had the confidence to to handle projects like that, like they did, you know? And I suppose even in those days with limited resources and budgets, you know, unlike uh, some of the international brands and Broadway theater productions <laughs> and those, you know? I think budgets are always limited. I don't think they've changed over time. I think it's always <laughs> a budget problem anyway in the world, you know. <laughs> so from the early days, what was what was one of your fondest memories when you started working in the game? And I mean, I mean, initially working into the market theater initially when you walked onto the stage, the feeling that you got, what what is it? What are the memories that sticks with you the most? It's a strange one. I mean, obviously, you know, the, how quickly I fell in love with lighting was was very, you know sort of uplifting and, and I really enjoyed the challenge of of the technology and, and this new form that, that that created light and created stories on a stage. That was that was always great to me. But strangely enough the the fondest memories are, are an empty theater. For me an empty theater is is sort of a I don't know, a holy grail, a happy place. I mean I'd often go at lunchtime with no one there in an empty theater and I'm just going sit in the theater or lie on the stage and absorb that feeling and that smell of the space because I feel that, that, that a theater is filled with so much energy from all the performances and all the people that have walked those spaces. And, and that, that I believe that that energy remains in the space. And if you, if you I agree, it really is, it's magical. I agree. You know. I used, to, I used to always come at least half an hour or 45 minutes before call time when I was working in theater to just to sit there and, and quiet, especially the big opera houses. I found those the most the most in, entertaining spaces to sit, you know, with the beautiful architecture and just the acoustics. I love that. I love that. Yeah, that's um, definitely a feeling in a theater. Definitely. Cool. So, you know, yeah. jumping a bit more forward, how do you keep your skills up to date? Which formats and where do you find the information that keeps you at the cutting edge of your industry at the moment? Nowadays, it's very different to when we first started. I think, you know, we have access to everything on the internet. There is, there is nothing you can't learn with, with a bit of a search, you know, any, any form of, of YouTube, of Google, and just reading, man. Read the manuals, speak to people, 
and and basically conversations and even even you know i find that the gear suppliers are a great source of of inspiration as well because these guys are brought to speed on what is what is coming out and and have conversations with them you know don't you know go and visit them and and, and ask them what's new and and google the stuff and read the stuff and, and watch the videos there's, there's no reason why you can't do something you know and, and i suppose i, I suppose just... also trade shows i mean you and i've attended a few trade yeah, shows yeah. in our lives yeah, and yeah. We've had the. Yeah. We've been very fortunate to travel to some of the factories as well and meet the meet the manufacturers in person, which has been fantastic. Yeah, just tap into the vibe of of what people are talking about, and and then and don't be afraid to try new technology because I think it's there to be to be used. And I I think what I often do, and it's it's probably <laughs> a bit risky, but sometimes if there is a new piece of tech that I want to try, whether it be some automation of something or, or triggering of something or advanced control of a media server of some sort I, I tend to offer that service to a client on a small to medium scale project and then set myself a deadline to achieve it and, and that that pressure of of saying you can do it uh is helps me drive myself to learn it you know absolutely that's fantastic now i i do know that you have recently made some changes and you've you've gone across from the MA2 platform, which you and I worked on for many years, and you're now working on the MA3 platform. And and, and tell me about your transition. How how did you find that going going from two to three? Uh, it's been a bit of a slow process over a couple of years, but it, it it's sped up in the last six months, I'd say. You know, in the early days I was a, I was a little bit apprehensive, but but once I made the leap, I'm uh, I'm absolutely actually loving it at the moment, to be honest. Uh, Oh, that's great. What, what, I, what I found was that we often get intimidated by the new look, the new GUI, the new button layout, and, and that, that tends to add some sort of anxiety and slow us down, and we think we're not good enough on it. But the truth is some of the fundamentals are, are, of the MA2 are there. Um, everything you need is there from your sequences and your groups and your presets, and, and your patches is, is, is very similar. If not, obviously, it's got more to it, but... But if you're just doing the basics, it's got everything you need from a basic point of view. So all the nuts and bolts are basically in the same place, in the right place that you need, eh? Yeah, they are. And then once you once once you just learn how to build from the nuts and bolts, then you can start delving into the major features of what the MA3 tries to bring about. I mean, oh, that's great. What I what I what I say to people these days is that lighting, yes, there is lighting design, but there's a new element to lighting, and it's almost like should I say sort of information management, data management in a way, because everything is becoming so much more complex and everything has more features. So you have all this information that you, you need to manage from a data point of view. And I think consoles like MA3 start allowing you to do that in a more advanced and simpler way. Yeah. You know? yeah. And now, now to be honest with you, I, I, I'm more comfortable on MA3 than I am on MA2. I must say the the ability to be able to move your data pools around from show to show, I find I'm loving that. I'm finding the fact that it can, that saves a lot of time and a lot of effort. You know, before previously we used to rely heavily on our on our actual user profile, and I find that with MO3, there's so much more than just the user profile to depend on. You know, data pools so, are lots of fun. I have to say, yeah. yeah so, so would would you recommend to other users to take the plunge to three if they currently on two? It's it's inevitable. Eh? I think it's absolutely inevitable. I mean, the, the, the organicness of how it handles fixtures and, and 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 the fluid motion with with which it produces effects and and produces a flow of 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 movement within the lights is 
sort of a very visually pleasing way once you get used to it. It can really add sort of dynamics to a room, some very simple sequences within recipes and, and some great sort of phases across the rig that can be activated. So yeah, I, I would recommend it. Huh? It's going to feel intimidating, but like I said earlier, say you can do it and off, take it on on a show and you'll be surprised if you can do it. Absolutely. I think that's definitely the way to go about it. So, so the next thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, let's talk a bit of design. You know, I, I, I know you've been the production designer for Idols in South Africa for now. What was it? Almost two decades. How many seasons did you do? I don't recall. I think it was fourteen seasons. Yeah, fourteen yeah. seasons, fourteen years on the same production. Yeah, uh, yeah. What is your yeah, What is your yeah. approach to designing a set and lighting design for something like Idols? And how do you keep it interesting for so long, for so many years? I mean, each of your designs every year looks spectacular. You've had a happy client for 14 years. How do you do it? What is your what is your secret? No, I, I think I think you know, Idols has such a great producer director, Gavin Ratten, who's, who's a very dynamic gentleman, and he he always I always discuss things with him and, and lean on a starting point from there, and we move forward and. Sometimes we choose a shape that we're following. Sometimes we choose a, a formation of some kind, you know, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But, but I think over the years, every year I try and implement a new piece of technology into the show to try and keep it interesting. So, you know, we started the early days and we didn't time code anything then. We just used to just build stuff. And I think first couple of seasons, I even busked a, a few songs. So. <laughs> then, then I moved it into some some dynamic cue lists, and then we moved it into time code, yeah. and then we moved we brought in something like cue pilot to help us cut cut cameras, and then we brought in all um, some some uh, robo spots for next year, and and I think each year I look at what technology is there and what is available, and if there's something new, we try and bring it onto the show. Uh, I suppose it's also it's also not just there to you know to to make the clients happy, but also to keep you interested and focused and yeah, yeah, you know yeah. learning something yeah. new, adv advancing your own skills, um, you know, to, uh, uh, trying trying to push yourself. I suppose on each production, you know. That's exactly it, and then and then That's also uh, you know your 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 design your design ideas and styles change over the years, and and towards the end now, what we what we realize is that when when we look at a rig. We try and group types of fixtures together within formations on on the stage, so that they almost behave like a single fixture, and they make more of a statement together, rather than yep. dispersing individual fixtures all over the place. So, we, you know, over the years we've learned to try and different. So we try different patterns of different types of fixtures in different places. And I suppose often, you know, I suppose often it's it's using the same type, fixture types. It's just using them in different positions and stuff to try and keep it interesting. You know. Okay, cool. That well, that's that makes sense to me. Um, yeah. like you say, just yeah. keep pushing it. So I wanted to get more into the TV lighting aspect of it, the technical approach around it. Yeah. So so yeah. you know, what's your approach towards key lighting for a TV production? You know, in 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 music in particular, is so dynamic. Well, you know, what kind of color temperatures do you aim for? No, I mean it's, it's that's, that that in itself has changed so many times over the years. You know, from my first experiences up to where it is now. So that. I've always said, yes, there are some rules to how you do it. Yes, but but lighting in itself is rules are, you know, as lighting guys, we tend to break rules. So <laughs> so rules are, are there as a guideline to me, you know, and and they do help us get to a point. And and 
So now currently, uh, we do a single follow spot focus on them for a performance. So, so you straight do a straight, on, a, a straight on from the front, straight on in line with the center camera as a single source, straight on to the performance phase. But that is only for a performance. You know, when it comes to a presenter, I would then have a, a key and a fill, uh, and then possibly use the follow spot just to add a bit of I got you sort of smoothness on the front of the face. But, but you know, for a, for a music piece on a singer, single straight on on the center camera really works well. And and for a presenter, it helps to come the key and fill. Yes, even that, even that is because I was self-taught. I don't think I I tend to follow the the, the recommended angles of key and fill. I I brought a lot of my three-point lighting in from theatre into the way I yeah. light television. So Absolutely. you know, three-point lighting is there for a reason, and it, it helps you create depth and definition on a person's face. So even a theatrical three-point lighting brought into a television environment, if if that you know can achieve good things, good looks. But so you're saying. So what you're saying is, there's no yeah. actual specific color temperature that you're aiming for. Is it really? No, no, there is. No, there is. There is. I think you know, with technology these days, with the amount of LED screens you got and the amount of cold source projection, LED, LED strip, that's all very cold. And you know, sort of the six thousand Kelvin kind of kind of scenario, even you know five six or whatever. So. I tend to bring my front light up to about 5,000 Kelvin okay. so that I can then cool down the front light and therefore all my, my colors tend to match the LED screen and the LED screen when it produces a blue, it's blue. If there's a, you know, a pink, it's there. But if you, if you start lowering your color temperature down, the more you lower it down to three, two, you start losing inks and the purples. Yeah. Purples. You get the muddiness in the camera as well. Hey? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tend, you get a lot more blue within the within the purples. You know, so if you can get get it to five thousand, that's good. Absolutely, really I, I know that we've previously aimed. Sometimes we've we've got it as high as five two, uh, depending on the size yeah. of the stage and the lighting fixtures yeah. we're using. Usually, I sometimes run it at about six thousand, even. You know? I suppose so, that'd be very different. It's a very it's a very different yeah. scenario when you're running illusion, but we'll get yeah. to that a little bit later. For now, do you currently have any weapons of choice? And I'm talking specifically about fixtures um for for key lights. Um, if I'm honest, um you know, it's, it's difficult to pinpoint a specific brand or a light or something because it, they, they, these this day and age, you know, LED profiles. Especially the moving head range, a lot of a lot of them are very similar in terms of how how well they do it. You know, whether you're looking at sort of a Robe Esprit or a or a, a Etnuris or you know that kind of thing, it, it, it tends to give you what you need. The clay Pacquia rollers are, are fantastic as well. You know, even Elation has got the Proteus. So all of these lead profiles can can give you what you want. You know, um, okay. I tend to I tend to focus on that as long as it's got a decent framing and I can cut my color temperature. Look, a lot of a lot of things with a high CRI do help. People yes. talk about the high CRI. Mm. It, it is it is better, but you know I tend to be able to mix most of those things myself with it. When you're speaking, have you moved away from the arc lamps? Are you going? Are you going more for the LED lamp sources now? I, I am actually, if I'm honest. Um, okay. And the main the main reason I do that is because. You know, in the arc sources, you tend to get different intensities between different units based on the lamp life. Absolutely. So sometimes that's one of the biggest problems for a, me. Yeah, it takes a little bit of work to balance the stage. Whereas you know, with the LED, 
you're generally going to get an even level across the stage to start with, and it's a lot simpler to to manipulate it. You know, the way the lead source falls on the skin. You know. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I suppose then also you you also in in South Africa you're working uh, with a a lot of dark skins um, and different Mm. skin tones all together. And I know some of the problems Mm. we used to have with the older arc lamps was a lot of green. Um, and and yeah. I know we used to mix in a bit of magenta on the flag to try and get rid of some of the green and stuff. So you, are, you, are you feeling like the LED technology has has uh, helped no. that in any way? No, you still need to do it. Eh? You still need it's to a... do it. There's still green. Green sneaks okay. in everywhere. So you still okay. need to bring in a little bit of magenta just to take the edge off it. You know, built-in ICRI filter now these days, which does help it closely. You know, but I mean, it, it, back to something that I use regularly, and I will, I will. What we have access to here in South Africa, obviously, we, we have access to different stuff. I mean, we don't, unfortunately, not quite of the European market where we have access to as much uh, technology as we need to. But the RoboSpot for me is 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 my go-to thing at the moment for, for television. I'm That's awesome. I'm continuing to go, yeah, I'm continuing to move to the RoboSpot as often as possible, especially for music. Because okay. it, just, it just makes it easier. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so, I mean, you know, you and I have done hundreds of productions together. And um, I know one of the things that we've always leaned towards is a brighter backlight, um, in particular on the main performers. Now, maybe you could share with the listeners why we would do that uh, and what that does for the overall picture. From my side, a backlight is as as important as a, a key light or a front light. I think they, they should hold the same level of importance on any stage. Yeah, a picture is not complete unless that person has a backlight. It drives me nuts, you know. It, 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 it for me, it, it completes the shape of of a person. And it, and the minute you throw a decent backlight onto a person with a front light, somehow the background itself tidies up. And I, I, I can't pinpoint exactly how, but suddenly it looks neater in the background. And mm. you you given a more leeway in terms of the flares you want to add into the picture and. and and even if you've got less light in the background, if it's a bit dull, you you the backlight will make the whole picture seem sparkly and seem seem more edgy and and and, and have more shape to it. You know, and yes, a bright one I do use sometimes. And and and, and nowadays nowadays I, I I'm tending to to color the backlight, you know, with a something like a steel or a or a light pink or a CTO on the scene. So so you actually go a lot colder, a lot colder than. Than, uh, yeah. than what your front light yeah. is. That's always, I think, the contrast that yeah. gets it to look yeah. nice. I think the blend between the warm and the cold on on the person also really helps the yeah. picture pop nicely. You'll find if I'm doing a if I'm doing a warm scene, I might have a cold backlight, like a, a steel blue. Yeah, it helps the person jump out more. And if it's a, if it's a if it's a cold scene, you know, I might even do a CTO backlight. So okay. something very warm, like it's a two thousand seven hundred Kelvin, three thousand Kelvin backlight. But yeah. that's why. Something like an automated follow spot allows you to do that. It really has changed the way we can change dynamics between scene to scene or song to song. I agree with you. So if just, I think in brief, uh, what would you say is your dirty little secret in creating these gorgeous images that you produce weekly on national TV? You know, I I don't know if it's just, I mean, your gut. It's you watch the picture, watch the screen like a hawk and, and focus on the screen and, and don't be afraid to to adjust by two percent here, one percent there. And the small changes. 
that that two percent difference makes makes a huge difference, you know. Absolutely. Also, lately, one of my one of my things, one of my secrets is 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 having a very open iris, um, running at a two point eight f stop, or a three f stop, you know, um, so that the camera's got a very sort of wide iris, um, and it's you can run at extremely low light on the stage, a lot lower than sometimes even the eye can see it in the venue. Because that, yeah. that creates a, it lets you get away with all of your mistakes within the background. It evens out all your all your errors. It makes the difference between all the dark spots and the bright spots. It closes the gap between them. It, it also it also helps the black levels. So I think the black levels look better if you're not blasting yeah. it from the front or the back with uh, your, all your lights at 100. percent It's one of the things yeah. I teach. I teach, and it's one of the things you and I taught in our original course, a lighting design course, yeah. is that you have to not fight with the lights in the room especially when there's cameras involved you know people a lot of people realize don't realize how important it is to get the led screen at the back dot right down i think you and our magic oh. number was 15 percent or 14 yeah, percent or even 12 yeah. or even 12 percent to try and balance no, it you know um, i won't lie I, I often that's an often uh uh, a discussion. I wouldn't say heated discussion. I think it's one that you have to convince the any, any <laughs> almost always. Or, yeah, they don't want to do it. They don't want to go down. But the truth is, is that when you do go down to the right levels of the lead screen, it does work on the camera. Okay, 100%. so I, I, I know I know a lot of your successes successes are is owed to your personal relationships that you've built over the years with creatives, directors, choreographers. What is your approach to dealing with tough customers? You know, how do you balance what's possible with their expectations? I think relationships, hey, and 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 I just really believe in 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 trying to be a good person, you know, and trying to be a nice guy and understand that we are all under pressure on this project. Nobody is is different to anybody else. And and you know, yes, there are clients that have strange demands and and the truth is is that they are the client and if they want something it's our job as the technical expert or designer to try and achieve their vision for them you know it's not our job to be the vision we they have a vision and we are there to supplement that vision and help them create it so they're being difficult for whatever reason you can't judge them for why they're being difficult they could be under different pressure that you don't understand so I suppose your advice would be to just give them the room to to be difficult, right? Yeah. I, I think so. I, you know, you can fight them on it, but it's just going to make the whole space uncomfortable. You know, you you gotta you gotta take it on the chin sometimes. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and and have thick skin. Don't take yep. things personally. But the truth is that the better relationships you can build with your clients, the more chance you have of of doing the job again next year so if you start fighting with your client about it and if you start being precious about your work and and what you want to achieve and and make their life uncomfortable there's a very good chance they're not going to hire you again because you know why would they hire someone that makes them uncomfortable they would, 100%. You know, they would rather they would rather have someone around that supports them so, and I suppose that's why yeah. you've landed some of these gigs for for periods like fourteen years, you know, because you, you're with that guy that's and he doesn't want to work with anybody else, you know. You, you sometimes when he's in yeah. a bad mood, you listen to what he has to say and you give him the space. You know, he is the boss, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. So yeah, I think I mean, that's and, important, and, you know. And often you'll find that if you have that relationship with your client and you 
you you give them leeway and you support them and you make them feel good. When you tend to not have a good day, when you may be failing or falling behind on schedule or or not quite achieving something, they, they tend to be more forgiving towards you and give yeah. you another chance. So, you know, talking about relationships, I know something that you taught me when I first started working with you in the TV side of things was it's very important to have a really good relationship with the shaders in the Obi van. Maybe you can share with our listeners how you go about managing that relationship. What is the importance of that relationship to you? I learned that in, I think in my, my first major television production that I ever did. I think it was Project Fame back in 2003, my first sort of intro into big live television. And, and I, I was definitely sort of, out of my debt slightly, and and I had a great division controller there named Louise Creel, who's who's a legend in our industry, and her ability to take my pictures and and, and clean them up from her back end was was taught sort of laid the foundation for that. And then I took that further and realised that a lot of guys in our industry who aren't used to television will just generally think the cap the Obi van or the or the camera crew are separate to us on a live event, and, and they won't interact with them and and tend to throw whatever light they have at the stage and not understand that the visual controller is the actual final stop to what goes out there. And the more difficult we make their life, and the more difficult it is going to be to achieve great pictures. So if it looks like rubbish, yeah. it's going to be their responsibility at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. If it's inconsistent, one thing you must understand about television lighting, consistency is key. So don't give them varying levels of front light and back light. What is your level must be your level throughout the entire broadcast. If you if you start throwing super bright scenes and super dark scenes, your visual controller is not going to be able to help you. They're going to get lost and they're going to, you're going to start working on two different spheres of each other. Do you mean specifically with key lighting or do you mean just with your levels in general? Specifically with key lighting, eh? because that's where the foundation starts. You know, when it comes to television, the close-up is 80% of your show. Wow. 80%, 90% of your show is the close-up. Get that right, and it will give you the time to pick the wide shot, you know? Okay. Um, that always helps. But but I think communication with the vision controller is super, super important. And discussing things with them, like how bright you want to have it and um, where his f-stop is going to sit and and, and and allowing him to tell you when something's not right and listening to him. And if, if you can start doing that, you'll be surprised when a, when a vision controller says there's something wrong with the picture and you listen to them, it tends to fix things. Yeah. And then suddenly you they'll go they'll go to war for you because you're helping them. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but make friend make friends with them, you know. I suppose it's about keeping the communications open with him the whole time and making sure that they realize their their role in the in the in the in the whole job, you know? Yeah, a trick a trick that I do um, uh, on on all television productions is that the first day or two of rehearsals, I will communicate with the vision controller and we will just, we will choose an f stop level, whether okay. it be two point eight, three, three and a half. I don't go to four anymore, but but we'll choose an f stop and we'll put every single camera in that f stop range and and then. I, I then ask them and they agree. They do not touch the iris for two days, no matter what the picture looks like, um, so that I can then see where all the problems are and have those two days to 
balance my levels. So I suppose otherwise, if they if they start changing everything and trying to fix it from day one, it's a mess yeah. because you know it, your your levels are not going to be consistent because you're still trying to program the show and get the looks out of it, right? And then you don't know what's wrong because they exactly. fixed it already. So you think it's fine, but it's actually not. So you know what I tend to do is that I tell them from final dress rehearsal, uh, the cameras are yours. I said I'll fix yeah. what I can, and they'll they'll take over. I give them final dress rehearsal to get used to adjusting anything they need to, and then we go to show. And it tends to work well when you do that. So. Okay, so so you know, let's stick to the whole the whole cameras and the OB vans and stuff. You, you know, what do you do when you're dealing with somebody who's incompetent? And I'm speaking specifically camera directors, yeah. you know, or shaders. shaders if, the, yeah. if they're not doing a good job, how, how do you handle that politics? I think you have to come to a, a realization sometimes on a project that a director might not be cutting the same sequence every time or that a shader uh, doesn't quite know how to balance their cameras or, or it's kind of a little bit all over the place. It, you know, it can be a little bit unfortunate, but I think you have to find a safety zone for yourself. So, you know, depending on the scale of director, you can then scale up how you achieve it, how you do something on, on, on the song. But if there's someone who's cutting all over the place, you, you have to play it a little bit safe and, and almost try and make as many cameras look good as you possibly can in one go, instead of trying to try the clever tricks of going to darkness in some places and, and, and taking chances. You have to limit the chances you take and start playing it more safe and, and try and light the entire space that the entire yeah. space looks good. You would probably work out during a rehearsal, so you can kind of really tell whether the, this person's going to yeah. hack it or not. And then that would obviously you you would adjust your style to yeah. to make it more more safe, I suppose. Yeah. You know, if you have the luxury of using a system like QPilot, where every camera shot is designed to a time code piece, so you know exactly what camera they're going to be on at any given moment, then you can take some really advanced risks on your lighting and almost go to black at moments and back out again and. And, and 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 be cheeky with how you light a space, knowing that it's safe that this part of the room is dark because you're never going to go there. But if a director is going to take any shot at any time, you have to light the whole space because what will happen is that the director might take the shot anyway, and it's not the director that's going to look bad. It's you, the lighting guy, that's going to look bad because you, you haven't lit the space, yep. even though you're trying something super creative. Um, yep. It doesn't always work. And yep. it's the same with a shader. You know, sometimes you you do get shaders that that are inconsistent in their iris levels and and their colours and and all that kind of stuff. So you 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 have to be as consistent yourself as you can. Don't give them surprise levels. Even it out. If it's even, then you can do whatever it needs. You know. So how would you explain your approach to programming for music? And I'm I'm talking specifically about you know tight turnaround times where you have to produce 10 time coded songs a show for a week Culists, bro Culists are the the answer for for television um because things need to be consistent uh every time and a culist allows you to to build notes into your your song and allows you to to follow a specific trigger timeline with a cue so so what I tend to do is, is the first run of a song, if I haven't had any sort of pre-production time or pre-studio time, um, then I would, I would 
use the rehearsal in space to go the first run of the song, I build an empty cue list with labels of points within the song. And, and if you follow them while they're running the song, you can start off with the start of the song, when the vocal begins, you know, maybe there's a piece of choreography movement, dancers enter, and then you go verse and chorus and bridge and, you know. So as it's happening, you're building a sequential cue list. So I suppose as opposed to as opposed to making the notes on a piece of paper, you, you are actually you are actually re uh, recording it straight in onto the console to save yourself some time. Hundred percent, because then your notes are in order uh, already, and the next time they run the song, you can actually start following them with your cue list, which then gives you a rehearsal. Um, That's fantastic. And at that point, you can start adding information to those cues as as they're doing stuff. You know. And then, how and often do you? get the music beforehand and do you get to, when do you add the time coded aspect of it? Do you know, do you add it in venue? Do you add it before? More and more it's like giving us stuff earlier. Um, definitely it's, it's getting easier to get stuff. So for example, for, for idols, we tend to get the week's music on a Wednesday or a Tuesday and go into venue on a Thursday or a Friday. Uh, so we have one day of sound checks with artists and then we have one day of camera rehearsals and then, the third day is the show. So we would get it a day before or two days before. So we would sit and build the cue lists, empty cue lists beforehand with and try and time code them beforehand. So that that way when we get to the sound check day, we have we have a time coded sequence of music so that we can then let that run and we can populate that that cue list as we go, you know. And it you know lighting is is it's got many layers to it. Uh, you know, the first pass of a song is never going to be the final pass. The first pass will be a rough edit, like anything you do in life when you edit it. But the first pass will just be some rough color changes, some some rough effects, maybe a few key positions within the stage. And then the next time you listen to it, you refine those and maybe add a few more advanced moves. And then the fourth time you hear the song, you keep you keep adding changes and. And one of the things we say to ourselves often on a Saturday rehearsal uh, where everything just looks like a mess on camera the first time you see it because, you know, it's, it's, your, it's your rough cut. We tell ourselves, trust the notes. Write down notes for, for, for the song. And, and the great thing about having a cue list is that your, your note can be cue number specific. So you That's can it. say, cue six, have more backlight. Cue seven yeah. needs... Uh, uh, a new position on stage. Q8's timing is off. Uh, Q9, not enough front light on on BVs, you know? And instead of then trying to rethink the song in your note section, you actually literally go into that Q number, adding light on the BV, fixing that. So you're not, your, your notes become more focused. And if you just go through those notes sequentially, the song just starts sculpting itself. Yeah. I, I must say, I used to key. I used to enjoy working with the directors that prefer to use time code, and I would prefer it if they actually came and sat next to me at the at the lighting desk when we ran a song. So they would then look at my cue list running, and they would make notes saying, "I mean, not everyone does this. Don't get me wrong, but he, he would say, okay, make a note Q five more this, uh, Q six more that.' Mm -hmm. You know, um, but that's a that's a great approach. Thank you for sharing some of your tips with me. Um, I, think I think just I think, to I think with yeah. I was going to add to that quickly. Eh? Yes, um, no, please, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Music is all about the timing, you know. Um, find the BPM of the song, if because it, when it comes to television, yes, obviously it's it's very different when you're within a a busking environment, and and that's not something I do a lot. So 
I'm speaking more specifically about a constructed piece of music, but take the time to find the BPM of the song because if you get the timing right, it's half your work done. Uh, yeah. and, and then automatically it has a good feeling to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, something I suppose that's a little bit more, I would <laughs> hate to say boring, but also challenging is just quickly, like if you were designing a long-term studio installation, because I know that you also do a lot of that stuff, um, what is the most important foolproof tips you can advise people to follow? Taking budget aside. No, it's 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 about deepness. It's very different to a, a, a live installation where you where you're gonna rip it out all at the end, but but it's about designing a solid foolproof system that switches on every day. And everything needs to be neat. It needs to be run properly. Um cables can't just be run around the corner and drop down and plugged into something. It has to follow as if you are doing a an installation in a house or, or in, in a space where people can see stuff. Um, and, you know, in terms of lighting the people, you, you, you light them as you light them. If you light a person well, you light a person well. So I don't really change the way I light the people themselves within a, within a permanent installation. You just, you just follow your guidelines and, and light them as you need to. Um, and don't overthink it, you know, trust your guts sometimes, just light them the way you light them and the rest will take care of itself. But create a system that is more solid and, and neater uh, because you're not there every day and the operator needs to switch on and it needs to look the same every time. So I, I suppose right, it's, a, it's about designing something that's a bit more idiot proof. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, limit the amount of things they need to do on the console. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because we are there, and if I'm there, I know I can tweak things. But you don't want to give every single operator the ability to tweak, because then they'll tweak themselves out of out of a good night. <laughs> you know? Oh, out of a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that, that's happened. <laughs> okay, cool. So you know, just uh, we're getting towards the end of the conversation. Thank you so much for enlightening us with all your all your your bits and pieces. Um, no, if you wouldn't pleasure. mind sharing with us. What was one of the highlights of your career? Oh, I don't know. There's been, you know, such big moments. I mean, from from successful Miss SA uh, productions to idols being 14 years of greatness, and and obviously one of the one of the big ones is is uh, obviously going to program Eurovision, a big part of the programming and operating team in Israel. That was so quite special. Dream come true. Yeah, it's a dream come true. I mean, that was very special. I mean, we were we were talking earlier about walking into the theatre uh, or being in a quiet theatre. Yeah. But for me, for me, it was the same when I walked into yeah. that venue. I just wanted to, Every I just day. wanted to cry. <laughs> it was like Every day. Disneyland Every day. for lighting guys. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Eh? It was yeah. such a cool experience. I mean, it was hard work. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of pressure. Yeah. But the great thing about I learned on Eurovision is that there are so many professionals in one space that are all absolutely on their part. And every single one of them is at the top of their game. So you can trust in your brothers and your sisters to to have your back in situations yep. on that show. And you Absolutely. don't have to pick up the slack off and of someone else's work. You just stay in your lane. You do your job as well as you can. And you all meet together on the freeway of television. And suddenly all the cars are riding in a line. You know? Absolutely. That was, well. yeah, yeah. that was an amazing experience. Okay, so yeah. something fun. Have you ever made a mistake on the gig? That's really got you into a lot of trouble. And how did you deal with the repercussions after that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, everyone makes mistakes for, I mean, like, you know, I think the, the biggest mistake for Lady Guy would be a blackout. And I'm, I'm trying to, I, maybe I've blacked them all out, speaking of, no pun intended, but I don't think I can remember a lot of my mistakes, if I'm honest. Eh? Um, I had a funny moment, a very small mistake, but it was, I do laugh at it sometimes. I was doing a, a television awards show, and of this was theatre, we were, we were shooting um, theatre pieces within the stage for, for, um, for this television awards show, and it was live. Um, and obviously, theatre and television are very different mediums, and the creativeness of the theatre is one thing, and then the, the, the consistency of television is another. And I remember this particular little theatre piece. The director of the theatre piece came to me and said, "I need at the end, I need a snap blackout." I said, "No problem." So I, I put the snap blackout in, and we did. It was after rehearsal, so no one had seen it. We were live now. Uh, and at that moment, on, on live on television, we were on a close-up of the uh, head and shoulder shot of the main performer as he delivered the last line. And I went, snap, blackout. And I, I literally heard the entire Obi-Van gasp because every <laughs> single monitor in the van went complete black. Went black. <laughs> black on there. There was nothing to go to. Uh, and then and then, I, and then I faded up the sequence thereafter. But, but I learned that, no, for television, a blackout is not necessarily a blackout. It's not necessarily oh, the whole room to black. Yeah, just the, no, just the key line, maybe. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, well no, that... no, I try not to make too many mistakes, but but the great thing about lighting, and, and I often laugh at this, is that, you know, when a sound guy makes a mistake, it's pretty obvious. Mm. Video guy also makes mistakes, pretty obvious. But sometimes lighting guys, we tend to get away with a couple of mistakes here and there without people knowing because lighting is so, I don't know, they consider us the wild bunch of the crew, you know? Yeah, We get absolutely. to do some crew. No one really understands what we do from a, from a from a show point of view. So they let us get away with a few things. Yeah, I mean, we, we're not talking about equipment failure here. We are talking about, you know, human and human human mistakes, you know? These things do happen. Uh, you know? there, there is definitely a fair amount of equipment failure from time to time. Yeah, that, that has uh, so, so I mean, my next question was going to be, what did you learn from the experience? But as we said, never ever go full black on TV. So that yeah, kind of answers never that go one. Full black, yeah, yeah, it does. Um, it does. Okay. Yeah, it does. I think just to wrap up, Josh. Again, thanks for your time, mate. I just wanted to ask you if you had to give some advice to somebody starting out in this industry, or you know, somebody who's keen who wants to get into this game, and and like, what would you say to them? What would you say to a young Joshua back? Back of the day, just be keen and be eager and get involved where you can. Don't you know? Um, obviously, now we have access to learn everything online that we can, so there's a lot of that. But but don't be afraid to ask questions on site and 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 stick to it because it does take a little while to get known, and it's not it's not a quick it's not a quick thing, and it is hard work. Um, there'll be times when you think I'm not I'm not getting anywhere, but if you stick through it and 30 years later, like me, suddenly, you know, you have a living. So, you know, it does take a few years and be patient, uh, be a good guy uh, and absorb as much information you can from everybody around you. Don't think you know everything. Yeah, I suppose be humble yeah. and and uh, ask yeah, questions, humble. you know, ask yeah. questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know that we go, we all have something to learn always. None of us know everything. 
My friend, thank you so much for doing this for us today. I mean, oh, I know you're a busy man. I found you on probably the only day you will have off uh, this month. So I'm very thankful for for your 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 time. And that I'm grateful for. But yeah, an absolute pleasure to be here, bud. And I'm glad to share my knowledge. You know, knowledge is free. So share it for everyone. Great, mate. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day. Yeah, we'll chat soon. Yeah. Cheers, Cheers man. Yeah.